0: If you would, take your Bibles and turn to Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 3, and tonight we continue looking to the Old Testament witnesses of a coming kingdom of Christ on earth. And I want to just say this up front. it's As I was putting this whole project together, I, I really wrestled with the fact that we need to get into some theological weeds, into some details. and Generally speaking, the common thought among most pastors is don't get your people into the weeds and into the details because you, you, you might lose them. And it's been so gratifying over these past uh, few months as we've really just gotten started with this Millennium Series. I've, I've received feedback from so many of you that your ability to think about your heavenly future and your future on, on earth when Christ comes has increased and that has given you hope. And that's the entire point, isn't it? The more that you know about the future, the more you can have it ingrained in your heart and who you are. And I, I truly feel bad for believers who are not taught and who, who, their, their view of the future is simply, well, God will take care of everything in the end. We need more than that. The Bible gives us more than that. And I'm so thankful and so proud to be a part of, of this church body that eagerly desires these details. And as part of that detail, we've been going through the Old Testament witnesses just to give a demonstration for those who might say, well, the millennial kingdom of Christ is only spoken of in one place in the Bible, that is Revelation 20, and it's almost a parenthesis. It's, it's not. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And so for this particular mini-series, I picked 19 of my favorite places in the Old Testament. And tonight we come to Jeremiah, and we'll begin in chapter 3 and work our way forward to a few other chapters. But we're going to get to a a verse that's very familiar to you in a few minutes. And I thought it would be good to address this as well. The fact that every Christian, all of us, we undergo times and maybe even long seasons of spiritual suffering. We have seasons of terrible circumstances which plague us as human beings living in a fallen world. And during those times, maybe especially in those times, undoubtedly, that's when what is, in my opinion, the most marketed Bible verse concerning hope from God provides comfort. This Bible verse is marketed in the form of placards, calligraphy art, coffee mugs, t-shirts, website pages. A number of years ago, when I was going through a difficult time in my own life, I received a beautiful gift with this Bible verse. And I appreciated it. And that is Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans for peace and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And certainly in a general sense, that is true of all genuine believers in Christ, isn't it? God does know the plans He has for us. He does know our future and hope is indeed secured by the blood of the cross and the certain hope of heaven. But we have a duty to the word of God. As believers with integrity in how we treat the Bible, it's our duty to dig a little more deeply to find out what precipitated God making that promise. And what precipitated God making that promise is recorded in Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. See among the nations and look, be astonished, be astounded, because I'm about to do something in your days. You would not believe it if it was recounted to you. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who walks on the breadth of the land to possess dwelling places which are not theirs. The southern kingdom of Judah had been so unfaithful, so corrupt, so vile before God that God was bringing the Chaldean warriors of the Babylonian Empire to crush Judah, to destroy Israel. And Jeremiah 29.11, provided from God through the prophet Jeremiah, was just one small piece of the hope that God was giving even to His disobedient people. And in fact, Jeremiah 29.11 It stands not only in a larger passage with more meat to it than merely one promise, but it also stands in the the greater context of many, many promises and guarantees made to Israel. And I'll return to that shortly. Because we are trying to be astute in our understanding of the Scriptures and theology, I want to be reminded of some important features of premillennial theology to kind of set the stage for our observations in the larger picture of Jeremiah. The eminent Old Testament scholar, Dr. Walt Kaiser, he makes the observation that premillennialism has, quote, three basic features. One, it is a philosophy of history. Two, it involves a system of interpretation. And three, it is a theology of salvation history. Now, I I want to just share this with you just to kind of get our appetites going here. As a philosophy of history, premillennialism is unique because premillennialism asserts that God is wise enough, he's powerful enough, he's big enough to fulfill all of his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, listen carefully, within the scope of time and space. He doesn't have to change the rules. He doesn't have to change prophecy God doesn't abandon the real physical land promises made to the patriarchs. He fulfills all of His promises in a way we can understand. As a system of interpretation, premillennialism sees the promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to David as unconditional. They don't rest on the actions of any human being. Any theological system that alters the promises made to Abraham based on humanity's actions, such as Israel crucifying Christ, that denies the unconditional nature of these promises made to the patriarchs and to David concerning the future Israel on earth. And then as a theology of salvation history, God's judgment on Israel cannot be seen as His final word to His chosen nation, it's mind-boggling to me to read theologians who say as of 70 AD when uh, Jerusalem was destroyed, God's plan for Israel came to a close. That is a hefty statement to make. But consistently in the prophets of the Old Testament, which predict, yes, the judgment of Israel, they include the hope of Israel's return to the land and return to blessing. But here's the question posed by those in the camp of amillennialism the the theology that says Israel has at some level or in some way been replaced or redesignated by the church here's the question weren't all those promises of return and blessing fulfilled when Israel returned from exile in the in the fifth and fourth centuries they were fulfilled then weren't they but now, because they crucified Christ, which makes the Abrahamic covenant conditional, by the way, it's not. But now, since Israel crucified Christ, Israel has permanently lost her place as a geopolitical national entity with rights to her own land, rights to her own future security, right? That's the major question. And why do we hammer away at this week after week after week? We don't, the Bible does, week after week. Because if God can't keep his promises to Israel, I'm terrified of the day of my death. But because he can do what we seem to be, see to be what seems impossible, then we can trust in him. Weren't those promises of return and blessing fulfilled in the return from exile? I have an initial answer to that question. And if you need the short form of the sermon tonight, you can leave after this part. But then I'm going to give you the longer version from Jeremiah. Here's the initial answer. The post exile prophets, the prophets who wrote after Jews returned from the exile, they continued to prophesy of Israel's coming national blessing which in ways which can't be reinterpreted or redesignated as the church unless you simply choose to interpret those after, those post exile prophecies through the lens of, of the New Testament somehow changing the meaning of the Old Testament. Now, for example, the prophet Haggai records God as promising that someday he'll shake all the nations and the whole world will bring tribute to Israel. This is after the return. Haggai 2 7. The prophet Zechariah records Jerusalem being the capital of the world and obedient nations will bring their tribute and sinful nations who don't will be punished. This is after the exile. Malachi records that the righteous in Israel will trample down the wicked with the finality of God's judgment in Malachi 4.3. Obadiah describes the fully expanded borders of Israel possessing the land of all their enemies with a final declaration of Yahweh's kingdom rule on the earth in Obadiah 19-21. And Joel describes the deliverance of Israel, specifying that those who escaped Jerusalem during, quote, the great and awesome day of Yahweh in Joel 2, 31 and 32. None of those predictions came about after the return from exile. None of them did. So there must still be something to come. So tonight I want to look at the Old Testament witness of Jeremiah to answer this question. Did the prophet Jeremiah, who's so important to Israel's history, did the prophet Jeremiah foresee a restoration of Israel beyond the return from exile? Now, before we dive in, this particular series on Old Testament witnesses is about the millennial kingdom in general. And I have tried my best to avoid Israel. That's not the topic. We have other series coming up for Israel, but it's impossible to avoid intersecting with Israel. They're they're so intertwined. So this will be extremely Israel focused, but a little later we'll see how Israel's kingdom future intersects with your kingdom future with the Gentiles. So I'm going to give several answers to this question. Did the prophet Jeremiah foresee a restoration of Israel beyond the return from exile? Here's the first answer five promises. That's the first answer. Five promises. And that brings us now to Jeremiah 3:14. I'm going to read to us from verse 14 through verse 18. Jeremiah 3:14. Return, O faithless sons, declares Yahweh, for I am a master to you. And I will take you one from a city and two from a family and I will bring you to Zion. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will shepherd you on knowledge and understanding. It shall be in those days when you are multiplied and fruitful in the land, declares Yahweh. They will no longer say the ark of the covenant of Yahweh and it will not come upon the heart, nor will they remember it, nor will they miss it, nor will it be made again. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of Yahweh. And all the nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem, for the name of Yahweh. Nor will they walk anymore after the stubbornness of their evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah will walk with the house of Israel. And they will come together from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers as an inheritance. Jeremiah gives the reader a prophetic in times flavor to this passage. At that time, verse 17, in those days... Verse 18, a time where there's no more walking in sinful stubbornness, in verse 17. But we could break this down into five promises. The first promise God will remember every believing Jew. God will remember every believing Jew. In verse 14, Even if there's only one from a city or or just two from an entire family or a whole clan, not one true believer will be forgotten. They will be returned to Jerusalem. In verse 14, God portrays Israel in very tender, loving family terms. He pictures Israel as his sons, but also in even more intimate terms, he says, I am a master to you. Why is that an intimate term? Well, the Hebrew word here doesn't portray a master in the sense of the master-slave relationship. It pictures the husband-wife relationship. It's translated other places in the Old Testament as I am a husband to you. And so the basis for God's pleading to Israel to return to him is based on an unbreakable marriage bond. It was a marriage bond that God entered into with Israel at Mount Sinai. And because of that bond, God will remember every believing Jew. As a second promise, God will provide faithful shepherds. God will provide faithful shepherds. Verse 15, and I will give you shepherds after my own heart. Now some would say that in the return from exile, this was fulfilled by men like Zerubbabel and Ezra there at the the return. But that can't be construed as a permanent fixture at all. Only the coming of the great shepherd as described in Ezekiel 34 will accomplish that promise along with all the under shepherds appointed by Him. It's a third promise. God will fulfill His promises of a great population. God will fulfill His promises of a great population. Verse 16, It shall be in those days when you are multiplied and fruitful in the land. What is this speaking of? Well, we could... Look, we'll look in a few minutes at Jeremiah 23, which repeats this promise. We could think about God's promises to Abraham that he would make his descendants as the stars of the sky, as the sand of the seashore. He'll fulfill his promises to a great of a great population. There's a fourth promise. God will replace the Ark of the Covenant. God will replace the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 16. Why is this? Well, the Ark of the Covenant, during the time of the Old Covenant, it served as the throne of God on earth. It was placed in the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary of the temple, and it signified God's spiritual presence with his people. But now, verse 17, Jerusalem itself is the throne of God. And the nations are being gathered to the throne of Yahweh. It indicates visits to the king, to a person. The nations gathering in Jerusalem, this is one of the grandest pictures of the coming kingdom. It can't be spiritualized away as simply nations coming to faith in Christ. The text is very specific. They're gathering to Jerusalem, to the city. And there's a fifth promise. God will reunite Israel. He'll reunite Israel. Verse 18, in those days, the house of Judah, the southern kingdom will walk with the house of Israel, northern kingdom. Now, some will claim, well, that's what happened in the return from exile. They, they came back as a unified nation, and it was to a degree. But the return from exile was just a few thousand people. It wasn't the whole nation. And those returning, by the way, none of them came from the ten northern tribes. None of them. They never returned. You might know this also, the last phrase in verse 18 Promises that God's people will be returned to the land that I gave your fathers as an inheritance. What does that say? That's a legal idea of to the land with the exact boundaries the way I drew them when I promised it to Abraham. Makes it pretty difficult to spiritualize the land promises into some general concept of the whole earth belonging to believers in Christ. Because this is specific to land boundaries. So five promises help answer this question there's a second answer to the question did the prophet jeremiah foresee a restoration of israel beyond the return of exile the second answer is two time frames two time frames now we can go together to jeremiah chapter 16 jeremiah 16 verse 14 two time frames jeremiah 16 verse 14 The first time frame that answers this question is that restoration follows judgment. Restoration follows judgment. Jeremiah 16, verse 14. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when it will no longer be said, as Yahweh lives who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as Yahweh lives who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he had banished them. For I will return them to their own land, which I gave to their fathers. Behold, I am going to send for many fishermen, declares Yahweh, and they will fish for them. And afterwards, I will send for many hunters and they will hunt them from every mountain and every hill and from the crevices of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. I will first doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have profaned my land. They have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable idols and their abominations. Israel's coming national restoration, first of all, is compared to the most important event in Israel's history, the miraculous exodus from Egypt. And, And in fact, the national restoration will replace the exodus as the quintessential example of God's saving power. Even today, Jews say, remember, we serve the God who brought us out of Egypt, and now this will replace that. Remember, we serve the God who brought us back from every nation on earth. Verse 15 defines this restoration as a physical return to the land and the return to the land defined to the patriarchs. That's never happened in biblical history or post-biblical history. But as we read in verses 16 through 18, Israel must first undergo judgment for national sin. Verse 18, I will first doubly repay. When he says first, it means before the restoration I described in verses 14 and 15. Now, just to be clear, to doubly repay, this isn't double punishment. This would be inconsistent with God's justice, with his nature. It just speaks of proportionate justice. Nothing is more heinous in terms of covenant disloyalty than idolatry. It's spiritual adultery. So the payment for sin is very severe. In Isaiah's prophecy, God declares the same idea that at the end of the exile, Israel will have received double for all of her sins, just and proportionate judgment. The second time frame, which answers our question, is a coming time of Israel's distress a coming time of Israel's distress. And this overlaps certainly with the judgment, but it's, the, the text gives a separate explanation. This coming time of Israel's distress and the nations of the world are gathering around her. And if you say, this sounds a lot like the book of Revelation. Yes, because it's describing the same thing. Verse 19. Oh, Yahweh, my strength and my strong defense and my refuge in the day of distress. To you the nations will come from the ends of the earth and say, our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, futility and things of no profit. Can man make gods for himself, yet they are not gods? Therefore, behold, I am going to make them know. This time I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is Yahweh. And so God describes Israel here in what he calls a day of distress. The nations of the world are are gathering around her and the result will be that the nations see God for who He is. And this will happen in two ways. First, it will happen through the the might of His rescue of Israel. Zechariah 14 describes this and the the judgment of all these nations. But then it will happen, secondly, through the remnant of Gentiles who survive and they witness the restoration of Israel And the return of Messiah. And I I love what verse 18 says. Here's what the Gentiles are admitting our fathers have inherited nothing but lies. And they realize, can man make gods for himself? Yet they are not gods. This is the salvation of many Gentiles. Israel, first, though, will be in tremendous distress that's unparalleled. It has not happened yet. It's a time described many places in Scripture. Daniel 12:1 speaks of a time of distress such as never happened since there was a nation. Revelation 12:13 and 14 speaks of the people of God flying to the wilderness to hide for three and a half years. Jeremiah 30 verse seven says, "Oh, for that day is great. there is none like it. It is the time of Jacob's distress." Going back to our brother, Dr. Walt Kaiser. He says that these two time frames answer beyond a shadow of a doubt our question about Israel's restoration in Jeremiah predicting a time beyond the return from exile. He says this, to sum up a restoration of the historic land which overshadows even the exodus in fame preceded by a time of unprecedented trouble for Israel can fit only the premillennial scheme. So we've had five promises and two time frames. Here's a third answer to the question, did the prophet Jeremiah foresee a restoration of Israel beyond the return of the exile? Our third answer is one king. One king. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah 23, verse 3. Now in this passage... The coming Messiah will, in terms very familiar to us from Isaiah 11, he's going to be called simply the branch. I want to expand our understanding of this, though. This is more than just a metaphor of the Messiah coming from the tree, as it were, of Jesse and David, as Isaiah 11, 1 says. But the branch also speaks of legitimacy. It's a technical term. It refers to the rightful heir of an established dynasty, The proper king of the kingdom. Or to put it this way. That that a king might have many sons. He might have many branches. But Jesus is the branch. He is the only rightful heir. He is the only one who can sit on the throne of David. Jeremiah 23 verse 3. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock. Out of all the land where I have banished them. And cause them to return to their pasture. And they will be fruitful and multiply. We saw that earlier. I will also raise up shepherds over them and they will shepherd them and they will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor be any, any be left unattended, declares Yahweh. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he will reign as king and prosper and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called Yahweh, our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when they will no longer say, as Yahweh lives who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, but as Yahweh lives who brought up and brought back the seed of the household of Israel from the north land and from all the lands where I banished them, then they will live on their own soil. The central feature in this section is the announcement of the coming Davidic king But this is clearly in the context of the king's second coming. Or if I could put it in terms we understand, this is not a Christmas passage. The teaching of the remnant, this remnant that's going to come back, this theme is seen all over Jeremiah. Chapters 24 and 40 through 44 are the the biggest ones. In verse 3, we see once again the theme of being fruitful and multiplying. We saw that in Jeremiah 3. You might recall from last time that we highlighted Isaiah 65:20 the kingdom promises that infant mortality will be non-existent that contributes to this great promise for fruitfulness Verse 4 indicates righteous leadership alongside Messiah king righteous shepherds in contrast to the unrighteous shepherds under which Israel suffered for so long ungodly kings ungodly leaders these are listed in verse 1 of chapter 23 woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture declares Yahweh and in the verse 5 the righteous branch who is to come is associated in parallel fashion to doing justice and righteousness where in the land and in the verse 6 when messiah rules this is an important detail he will be called not named he'll be called He'll be known by, he'll be living out the ethic of Yahweh, our righteousness. Why is this important? That it says that he will be called, not named, Yahweh, our righteousness. To name somebody is to indicate a beginning. Him being called Yahweh, our righteousness, indicates no beginning. And in fact, it's very clear, this is the Messiah, and what is his name? Yahweh, he is God, who is our righteousness. And then again, you see the repeated pattern in verses 7 and 8, just like in chapter 16, the regathering of Israel now supersedes in legend, as it were, even the Exodus. And so one king answers this question. We've had five promises, two time frames, one king. Here's a fourth answer to the question, did the prophet Jeremiah foresee a restoration of Israel beyond the return from exile? Here's our fourth answer, two returns. Two returns. Turn to Jeremiah 29, and now we come to the best-selling verse in the Bible. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. This portion is addressed to the exiles of Babylon. Jeremiah 23, beginning in verse 10. For thus says Yahweh, when 70 years have been fulfilled for Babylon, I will visit you and establish my good word to you and return you to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans for peace and not for calamity, and to give you a hope and a future, a future and a hope rather. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares Yahweh, and I will return your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have banished you, declares Yahweh, and I will cause you to return to the place from where I sent you into exile. Now, verse 10, just a little side note here. Almost as if just it's, it's like an asterisk. God promises the destruction of an indestructible empire. That is Babylon. The Babylonian Empire. This was one of the portions of Scripture read by the prophet Daniel. And it led him to immediate prayer, immediate rejoicing, As he read this text, just a few years shy of the 70 years being complete. Daniel 9, beginning in verse 1, "...in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, from the seed of the Medes, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, discerned in the books the number of the years concerning which the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah the prophet for the fulfillment of the laying waste of Jerusalem, namely 70 years." I won't go into a lot of detail about the 70 years. There's a lot of questions as to how you figure that out. How do you figure out the 70 years? Actually, you can arrive at 70 years from multiple angles. I think the easiest solution is one from common history. In 539 B.C., the Babylonian Empire fell to the Persians. That was predicted in Jeremiah 29.10. In 538 B.C., Cyrus of Persia issued his decree to allow the Israelites to return to Israel. Ezra 1 records this. This decree happened 68 years after the exiles were first taken by the Babylonians in 605 B.C. And by the time the first wave of Jews was organized, by the time they traveled to Jerusalem, and by the time they laid the foundation of the temple, two more years had passed. 68 plus 2 equals what? 70. God is precise. So here are the two returns. I'm not speaking of returns from exile. First, a return to a specific location. And second, a return to fortune. The return to a specific location and the return to fortune. Verse 10, God promises to return you to this place. We see that at the end of verse 14 as well. And he says in verse 10, he is going to establish my good word. What does that mean? It speaks of the 70 years being fulfilled. It gives guarantee of the return. God keeping his word in both cases. Let me put it to you this way. We can understand this. If I were to tell you without a shadow of a doubt, the moon is going to explode 12 months from right now. And because of that, uh, you should now invest in such and such a company and you'll make a billion dollars. you go, ah, oh, that's silly. Twelve months from now, the uh, moon explodes. What are you doing? You're online with, with whatever investment service. He's like, give me everything you can in this. God said, I'm going to destroy the most powerful empire on earth. And oh, by the way, you're going to go back to the exact boundaries of the land that I promised. The most powerful empire on earth. Crumbles, what does that mean? You can count on the fact that the land promises will be fulfilled. But what is this place? What is it? In the greater context of Jeremiah 3, which we saw earlier, this place, the land that I gave to your fathers as an inheritance, did the exiles ever return to this place? No. They returned to a little teeny tiny part of this place. They return to 900 square miles. That's a tiny percentage of the whole land. If you want to put it this way, it's Bakersfield times six. That's it. The land promised Israel is way bigger than that. So it's a return to a specific location. Here's a second return. A return to fortune. A return to fortune. Verse 14. I will be found by you, declares Yahweh, and I will return your fortunes. What does that mean? Scholars debate this. What does it mean that her fortunes are returned? The easiest option is it simply means I'm going to give you your land back. All that belongs to you becomes yours. There's a clear connection here to the promises that God makes in Deuteronomy chapter 30 beginning in verse 3 that Yahweh your God will return you from captivity return his compassion on you. He will gather you again from all the peoples where Yahweh your God has scattered you. And Yahweh, your God, will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. I want to draw your attention back now to this best-selling of all Bible verses. Verse 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans for peace, not calamity, to give you a future and a hope. In particular, I want to focus our attention on the phrase to give you a future and a hope. The word future here in Hebrew is the word end. The same word is often used to describe the final outcome of a situation. Proverbs 5.4, her end is bitter as wormwood. Proverbs 16.25, there's a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Isaiah 46.10, God declares the end from the beginning. So it's best to see future as end Future and hope, they're, they're parallel. They're the same thing. That your hope is in the end. It's at the at the end of everything. The end is the hope. And the hope is the end. This is not just a generalized promise. This is an eschatological promise that at the end of everything is when the best stuff happens. And listen, the return of 50,000 people out of millions and millions, the return from the exile, that cannot be the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy because God is looking to the end. Not to a little time in the middle. So far our answers have been five promises, two time frames, one king, two returns. There's a fifth answer to the question. Did the prophet Jeremiah foresee a restoration of Israel beyond the return from exile? Take a deep breath. This answer is 13 characteristics. I saved this one for last. Turn to Jeremiah 30. Jeremiah 30 is so new testament flavored the larger section of Jeremiah 30 through 33 contains the new covenant prophecies of Jeremiah all reformed believers agree that Jeremiah 30 through 33 contains a major prophecy of the coming new covenant however trying to separate that trying to extricate these new covenant promises away from the intertwining promises with Israel, it becomes really difficult because the promises to Israel are specific, they're precise, and they're they're interwoven with the new covenant. You can't get them apart from each other. The Israelites were exiled by God. The southern kingdom of Judah exiled to Babylon, which would eventually be conquered by the Persians. But by the time of the Babylonian exile, the prophet Jeremiah, he wrote that God would be faithful to his covenantal people. Jeremiah 30 verse 1, the word which came to Jeremiah from Yahweh saying, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, write all the words which I have spoken to you in the book. For behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will return the fortunes, there it is again, of my people, Israel and Judah. Yahweh says, I will also cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers and they shall possess it. So what will be the characteristics of this return to the land? What's it going to look like? I'm going to give you a quick list. Number one, never enslaved again. They're never enslaved again. Verse 8 of Jeremiah 30, And it will be in that day, declares Yahweh of hosts, that I will break His yoke from off your neck and will tear off your bonds, and strangers will no longer make them their slaves. Never enslaved again. It's the second quality. Total vindication. Total vindication. Verse 11 of Jeremiah 30, for I am with you, declares Yahweh, to save you. For I will make a complete destruction of all the nations where I have scattered you. There's a third characteristic. Rebuilt Jerusalem and the temple. A rebuilt Jerusalem and the temple. Jeremiah 30 verse 18. Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will return the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwelling places, and the city will be rebuilt on its ruin, and the palace, that is the temple, will sit on its just place. There's a fourth characteristic. A complete regathering of true Israel. A complete regathering of true Israel. Chapter 31 Verse 8, Jeremiah 31, verse 8. Behold, I am bringing them from the north country. By the way, that's never happened, ever. I'm bringing them from the north country. I will gather them from the remote parts of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame, the woman with child, and she who is in labor with child together. A great assembly, they will return here. With weeping, they will come. And by supplication I will lead them. I will make them walk by streams of water on a straight path in which they will not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of Yahweh, O nations, and declare in the coastlands far away, and say, He who dispersed Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. There's a fifth characteristic perpetual celebration. If you don't like the word perpetual, constant party, perpetual celebration. Chapter 31, verse 13. Then the virgins will be glad in the dance and the young men and the old together for I will turn their mourning into joy and will comfort them and give them gladness for their sorrow. Here's one that makes it difficult to call this the church. Here's a sixth characteristic, a righteous priesthood a righteous priesthood Jeremiah 31 verse 14 I will fill the soul of the priests with richness Here's the seventh characteristic a new covenant with internal righteousness a new covenant with internal righteousness Jeremiah 3131 this is the this is the glorious incredible prophecy Behold days are coming declares Yahweh when I will cut a new covenant With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I cut with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, but I was a husband to them, declares Yahweh. But this is the covenant which I will cut with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. How is that going to happen? That happens with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's very familiar to us because we live under the beginnings of the new covenant. Here's an eighth characteristic. An eternal nation of Israel. An eternal nation of Israel. Chapter 31, verse 35 thus says Yahweh who gives the sun for light by day and the statutes for the moon and the stars for light by night who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar Yahweh of hosts is his name if these statutes are removed from before me declares Yahweh then the seed of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever this is very important all reformed Christians believe that God saves Jews and that Jews will be saved forever. This doesn't say God saves Jews. This says God saves a Jewish nation, a political entity. There's a ninth characteristic Jerusalem safe forever. Jerusalem safe forever. Chapter 31, verse 40 And the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron, that's right outside Israel to the corner of the horse gate toward the east, shall be holy to Yahweh. It will not be uprooted or pulled down any more forever. Generally speaking, according to certain international organizations, at any given time, Jerusalem is always in the top three most dangerous places on earth. But that won't be the case. Here's the tenth characteristic. All-inclusive spiritual unity. All-inclusive spiritual unity. Chapter 32, going all the way to verse 39. Chapter 32, verse 39. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. Why is that so amazing? All-inclusive spiritual unity? We have trouble making that happen just in one local church. Here's an 11th characteristic. Unimpeded fellowship with God. Unimpeded fellowship with God. Jeremiah 32, 41. And I will rejoice over them to do, to do them good and truly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all of my soul. Complete unimpeded fellowship. There's a twelfth characteristic. The world will honor Israel as God's nation. The world will honor Israel as God's nation. Has that ever happened? Never. Jeremiah 33, verse 9. 339, 9. And it will be to me a name of joy, praise, and beauty before all the nations of the earth, which will hear of all the good that I do for them. And they will be in dread and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I make for it. And one more characteristic, and I'm really just glossing over the mountaintops here. Temple worship will be restored. Temple worship will be restored. Chapter 33, verse 18. And the Levitical priests shall not have a man cut off from before me, is to offer burnt offerings to offer up grain offerings and smoke and to perform sacrifices continually I want to spend the rest of our time kind of going back by way of reminder to the end of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah and we went through all of Ezra and Nehemiah just as a precursor as preparation to begin looking at the millennium but I think it's helpful to go back to it. In fact, you can turn to Nehemiah chapter 13, and we'll be there in just a few minutes. But Ezra and Nehemiah gives the story of the return from exile, and it seems that God is doing all of these 13 things. But Ezra and Nehemiah stands as proof that the return from exile didn't fulfill God's promises in full it's certainly a shadow it's a demonstration that God can fulfill these promises but time and time again the people would fail in covenant loyalty all through Ezra and Nehemiah and for those who do not believe in the coming literal kingdom of God on earth or believe that the return from exile was the fulfillment of God's promises to restore Israel let's walk back through the characteristics of the restoration of Israel and see what really happened when, when the exiles came back, what really happened? Never enslaved again? In actuality, all the Israelites back in Israel after the return to Jerusalem are still serving the Persian king. You know what they call themselves in Nehemiah chapter 9? Slaves. Total vindication? Not even close. Just the people surrounding them, even just little small insignificant tribes are a thorn in their side and a continual threat throughout Ezra and Nehemiah. How about the rebuilt Jerusalem and temple? Yes, on a little tiny scale, but three decades after the time of Christ, Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed again by Rome. A complete regathering of true Israel. Less than 50,000 Jews returned originally. That's a fraction of the total. How about perpetual celebration? As you read through Ezra and Nehemiah, they had some celebrations but most of Ezra and Nehemiah is actually peppered with trials and pain and rebuke and spiritual failure. A righteous priesthood? Ezra and Nehemiah records corrupt priests, unspiritual men in places of leadership. How about a new covenant with internal righteousness? Multiple times, Israel gathers as a nation and says, We promise to obey. And then they don't obey over and over again. They're unable to maintain their obedience. How about an eternal nation of Israel? Israel will only be even what we might call semi-independent for one time period of about six years between the current time at the return of the exile in the late 5th century BC all the way until Rome decimates the nation. No, there's no eternal nation of Israel there. Jerusalem safe forever? In AD 70, the Roman legions of Titus destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple. All-inclusive spiritual unity. Ezra and Nehemiah both had to contend with disunity among the people. It's a constant theme. Some wanted to keep the law of God, some wanted to disregard the law of God. Some wanted to be faithful as an ethnic people. others wanted to pander to all the surrounding pagans. Unimpeded fellowship with God. Nehemiah chapter seven through 10, are all about having to re-establish fellowship with God after the exile. And, and this fellowship's broken again and again. The world honoring Israel as God's nation. Not even the little bitty tribes around Israel honored them as a nation. And certainly the Persia, Israel was just one little tiny conquered province that they controlled. Temple worship restored for a little while, but it didn't last. So what does Jeremiah tell us? Jeremiah tells us, that for any who would say that God's final promises to Israel were fulfilled in the return from exile, and that there's no future for national Israel, that cannot be the case. He's given us the evidence of five promises, two time frames, one king, two returns, and 13 characteristics. And I want to go back and remind us of the great Jeremiah himself. He threw in the towel. He waved the white flag. He knew that the return from exile was not the end. It was not, could not be God's fulfillment of his promises to Israel. In Jeremiah 13, or Nehemiah 13 rather, Nehemiah gives four, what I could call, remembers. Four times, Nehemiah says, Remember. And it shows that he knew that the kingdom of God on earth, the restoration of Israel, had not been fulfilled. The first remember, Nehemiah 13, verse 10. I also came to know that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. And so the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his own field. So I contended against the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and had them stand in their posts. All Judah then brought the tithe of the grain, new wine and oil into the storehouses. In charge of the storehouses, I appointed Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the priest, and Pediah of the Levites. In addition to them was Hanan the son of Zakur, the son of Madaniah. And they were counted as faithful. And it was their task to apportion everything to their relatives. What is this? Let me put it in church terms. Then somebody comes and finds out that the church hasn't been paying their pastors. And Nehemiah says, what's going on here? And so he prays, verse 14, remember me for this, O God. He re- prays to be remembered by God for his work and his attempt to put things right, which seem pointless now, but why is this so important? This is important because Nehemiah, listen carefully, he's not asking for blessing in his current day. He's asking for God's favor in the future, later. It's so a second, remember, Verse 20. Once or twice, the traders and merchants of every kind of merchandise spent the night outside Jerusalem. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will send forth my hand against you. And from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And I said to the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and come as gatekeepers to keep the Sabbath day holy. For this also, remember me, O my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. Nehemiah adds to his earlier prayer, for this also, remember me, O my God. Again, a future focus. Here's a third remember. Some of the priests had married foreign women, the men who were supposed to be the paragons of virtue, the examples of obedience. They married foreign women and if their children were not being taught Hebrew, they couldn't learn the word of God. Essentially, this would be like a pastor who raises his family to not know or care about God whatsoever. Chapter 13, verse 29, remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites because they, they were raising their kids as if there was no God. Nehemiah is asking God to remember that he has defended the sanctity of the priesthood. He's defended the sanctity of the Levites. By the way, showing that he believes that the priesthood and the Levites will function in the future. He says, remember them. We already saw this in Jeremiah 31 and 33. And there's a fourth remember. This is not only a summary of the first three remember prayers. It is the anticlimactic, disappointing end to all of Ezra Nehemiah verse 31 at the very end remember me O my God for good meaning today is done it's disappointed may you remember me tomorrow in the coming day or to put it this way what was Nehemiah's theology of the end times today we call him premillennial Because he lived the fact that Israel cannot function without her righteous king. He lived through it. And the king, Yahweh, our righteousness. He will bring the fullness of his kingdom and all that this means for Israel. When? When he returns. Doesn't Jeremiah, and then back to Nehemiah here, doesn't this start to remind you of the book of Revelation? All those who say, Well, the millennial kingdom is only in Revelation 20. Just read the Old Testament. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And what's the focus? The focus is the kingdom of Christ on earth cannot happen until Christ is on the earth. And that's what we pray for. That's what we long for. Let's long for it now together in prayer. Our Father, we come to you now. And as we have said at times that perhaps you would be so gracious that this is the last Lord's Day that we worship together on this earth. That perhaps Christ would come and take us home and begin that ticking clock of the seven years of the Great Tribulation while we and our resurrected bodies enjoy the glories of heaven awaiting the return to earth when Christ comes and brings all of His heavenly armies with Him. Perhaps this would be our final Lord's Day here and that would be tremendous. But in the meantime, we know that we have a calling from the King Himself and that is to go into all the nations and to make disciples. I pray that we would be faithful to that task until such a day that our Savior does return, that the King comes. We do pray for His soon coming, but we pray that we would be faithful To proclaim his name until that day happens. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.